Could do better. Good morning. All right. Hey, welcome to Grace Bible Church. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me uh, to the book of 1 Peter. Uh, if you don't have your own Bible, there are pew Bibles in the pew backs in front of you, and we will be on page 980. That is 1 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 2 is where we find ourselves th- this morning. So as you're doing that, as you're opening your Bibles and turning to uh, the book of 1 Peter, I want to ask you the same question that was asked of these folks on the video, and that is, why is it that you obey authority? Or, conversely, why is it that you don't? obey authority. And maybe more specifically here as we get into our text, why is it as Christians that we should obey authority? Well, Peter's going to tell us as we continue on in our sermon series called The Foreigners. Uh, We're in part three of The Foreigners, and I've entitled the sermon Lay Down to Authority. Uh, We've talked about thus far how we need to uh, look to our real home, and we need to long for our real home in heaven, is what Peter says. And then last week, we uh, talked about how we need to live differently as foreigners and aliens. Uh, We should uh, live differently than the people around us, and that's okay uh, and right for us to do that. This morning, we kind of continue on in the realm of thinking that Peter has started us on, and that is, how should we live differently than the world around us? What should it look like for us to be foreigners in a foreign land? What does it look like for us to be, uh, to live Christian in an unchristian world, and Peter, now in verse 13 of chapter 2, addresses in these short four verses, there's a ton in them, the question, why do we obey authority? How should we relate to the authority of the land? And so that's where we are, and uh, let's do this, let's pray, and then we'll jump right into our sermon this morning. So if you would pray with me, please. Father, thank you for the morning, thank you for the day. Um, I've been reminded this morning that your mercies are new um, every morning and that your grace to us is, is new. Uh, every breath that we take is a gift from you. Uh, Father, this life that we have is precious. You've given it to us and you've called us by name and you've numbered our days. And Father, may we value them. May we learn to live righteously and holy in the days that you've allotted uh, to us. Father, in particular this morning, I, I pray that you would help us uh, to think rightly about how we should relate to government, about how we should relate to those in authority over us, both on a federal level, on a state level, and even on a local level, as uh, your word instructs us uh, from so many years ago, and yet it's relevant for us today, how it is that we should relate to those in authority over us. And so help us. I I pray, Father, if uh, if there's sin in our heart, if there's rebellion in our mind uh, on this particular issue, that, that you would bring that to light, that we would have humble and repentant hearts and that we would see clearly from your word what it looks like to live as strangers and aliens, to live in this this world and not to be uh, of this world, and and to live in this nation uh, knowing that it's a temporary citizenship, that our real citizenship is is in heaven, and yet you've called us here now to live in this world and amongst all of these people and, and, and in this government that you've given us. And so help us. We want to be godly Christians. And so help us. Holy Spirit, be among us. Teach us. Open our eyes. Jesus, be honored and glorified as we do all of this unto obedience uh, unto you. Uh, We love you. We thank you, Jesus, and we ask it in your name and God's people said. Amen. I want to begin with a, with an, a story. Um, I had a friend who uh, was in seminary, and her name was Katie. Uh, I, I fail to remember her last name, but her first name was Katie, and uh, we had several classes together. We were in the same uh, kind of incoming class of freshmen together. Uh, I think my wife probably remembers Katie. Uh, she was my intern for one summer uh, when I was doing youth ministry in Dallas, and so I got to know her a little bit better then. Uh, wonderful, godly, uh, Christian uh, young lady, and she has had— um, 
quite the experience growing up. And so uh, we st- I started talking with her one day just about her life and where she came from, and she was sharing with me about the international flavor of her history. Uh, and she began to, to share with me that she was actually born in another country. I fail to remember exactly what country it was, but I remember her saying, yeah, I was born in this country, and then I lived here, and then I lived in the States, and then I lived all sorts of different places all over the world. Her dad was uh, pretty high up in some company organization, and and they moved around uh, quite a bit. And so I remember just, you know, being fascinated by that, and she she shared with me the information uh, about her citizenship, and I said, well, well, how does that work? You know, you were were born in another country, and your mom and dad are American citizens, and she said, well, I'm a dual citizen. I have dual citizenship, and I said, what does that mean? And I guess I'd never really pondered the, the concept of dual citizenship, and she went on to explain, well, it works differently in different countries, and, you know, so if you're born in this country versus that country, country, dual citizenship works differently, but she said the long and short of it is basically this, that I'm a citizen both both of America and of the country of my birth until I'm 18. I I have a dual citizenship, and and she said essentially what that means is that I have rights in America, and I have rights in this other country, but not only do I have rights, I have obligations. I have obligations to, uh, so to speak, obey that law when I'm in that country and fully obey the laws uh, in this country, and so she said I'm a dual citizen, and I said, "Well, well, you get to choose when you're 18, or you have chosen. You know, she was older than that, and I said, which did you choose? And she said, well, I chose to be an American citizen, and I said, well, uh, that makes sense. And, and that's, that stuck with me uh, for quite quite a long time, this idea of being a dual citizen, of being citizens of two countries and having rights and, and obligations of both. And so this morning, Peter turns in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, and Peter's going to use, I think, a a very similar image. If you recall, in in, in the first chapter of Peter, he strongly made the case that we're foreigners, that that we're aliens, and he essentially said, listen, our our, our real citizenship is not here. Our real citizenship, our real home is future. It's in heaven. We belong to to, to Jesus as our king, right? And, And he made this strong case that that we're not exactly citizens here, but our home is in heaven. But now Peter's going to come back around that idea, and he's going to say, well, actually, you are dual citizens. You have dual citizenship because you still live in, in, in a place and in, in a time and under, a, under an, a real government here and now. And he's going to make the argument that well, we have dual citizenship. And certainly our citizenship in heaven takes precedent. It's, it's primary. But that doesn't mean that we don't have rights, and it doesn't mean that we don't have obligations here and now. We are dual citizens. So what I'd like to do this morning is read through the text. Peter speaks to a group of Christians, and I want to give you a bit of a background before we read his word to them and to us about laying down to authority. We're going to read the text, and then we'll kind of break it up and see six things about laying down to authority. But just for some perspective, who who is it that Peter is writing to? Well, if you recall a couple of weeks ago, we, we saw that he's writing to a group of Christians. They are scattered throughout what is now modern-day Turkey, so a little bit away from uh, Rome, which is kind of the central hub of the government. Remember, this is the time of Roman rule, when the Caesars ruled the day, and they ruled the entirety of the world. That's the government that they were living under. And uh, up until mm, 64, I think, um, A.D., uh, the Roman government was well, uh, pretty well uninvolved with the Christian world. There was really no conflict there, but starting in uh, 64 AD, something significant happened. Uh, Have you ever heard of the great fire in Rome? Have you ever heard of the expression that Rome is burning while Caesar is what? 
twiddling his thumbs, right? Well, this is a, a real event. In 64 AD, a large part of the city of Rome burned. We don't know exactly how it was started. Some people think it was an accident. Uh, history points to the, the fact that, Rome, uh, that Nero, the emperor at the time, actually started the fires himself, had people start the fires because after the fire burned down much of the city, he underwent a massive rebuilding project and he wanted to make Rome grander and greater. So we think that's probably what happened. He, he set the fire ablaze, but what he didn't expect was that people, well, they were upset. They were un, unpleased with the fact that Rome had, had literally burned uh, to the ground to, to a large degree. And so there was tremendous pressure under this emperor Nero. And so what he did, history tells us, is that he found a scapegoat. And guess who he found? He found the Christians. He blamed it on the Christians. And history tells us because uh, the part of the city where most of the Christians and a lot of Jews lived went untouched. And so he found the Christians to be an easy scapegoat. He blamed the Christians for starting the fire. And in 64 AD, it began what was then kind of a, a long history of several, several years of government persecution of Christians. Now, we don't know exactly when this book was written. We think it's right around this event. It was maybe right before the fires of Rome. It was maybe right in the middle of the fires of Rome. It was maybe shortly after the fires of Rome. We don't know for sure, but my guess is that it was after the fires of Rome and this persecution of Christians began in Rome and began to spread throughout the empire. Just kind of Google uh, Christian persecution under Nero and you'll find out the kind of systematic persecution that this government, that the Christians were under, uh, began to do to Christians. Christians. And so that's the context. That's the government that these Christians were under. Now, let's see what Peter had to say about how these Christians and how us as Christians, how we're supposed to relate to the government and to the authorities over us. Let's read this together. We'll read it in its entirety, verses 13 through 17. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. And then he closes in verse 17, kind of a summary statement. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. And that is God's word to Christians as to how we are to relate to the government. And so if you're taking notes, what I want you to do uh, is, is, is jot down six R's, because what we have is, is six things that Peter's going to tell us about laying down to authority, six principles, so to speak, six key words. And so jot these down, six R's that we see, and we'll kind of walk our way through. Number one, we see the rule. We see the rule in verse 13, the very beginning of verse 13. Peter makes no bones about it. He wants to lay down uh, what is the normative principle, that is the guiding principle for how we as Christians 
are to relate to the governing authorities over us. And notice what he says. It's up on the screen. He simply says, submit yourselves. That's the rule. That's the guideline, right? That's, that's the normative principle. Submit yourselves. Literally, to submit simply means to, to voluntarily place yourself under the authority of, uh, of somebody else and therefore obey that authority. That's, that's essentially what submission means. He says, do this. That's the rule. That's the principle. That's the norm. Now, I think oftentimes as Christians, especially Christians who live in America, let's face it, we as Americans, we tend to be a rebellious people. That's how we got our country started, right? Uh, We had a declaration of independence, right? We are a independent people, and I think a part of our DNA here in America is... uh, is the idea of, of we, we question authority and, and we're, we have this propensity to kind of doubt authority and to break it. And, and so oftentimes as American Christians, when we see this kind of teaching in 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13, uh, Paul even expands further on this idea, we look and we say, submit yourselves. Okay, so we know the rule, what's, what's normative is that we're to obey the government, right? But then the question pops into our minds, and probably many of you, if you're still paying attention to my five-minute sermon thus far, you're probably thinking this question, but, but wait a minute, there's an exception. Wait a minute, there's an exception to that rule uh, in the Bible. And you're absolutely right. There's no doubt about it. There is a biblical exception. I would love to take the rest of our time and flesh out what that biblical exception looks like. I don't have time to do that. So let me just state it the best that I can understand, the biblical exception to this rule. And I'll state it this way. Uh, Number one, when the government tells us to do something that God tells us not to do. So when the government says, this is something that you have to do, I'm forcing you to do it as a government, and God's word says, don't do that. At that point, that is an exception to the rule. Or or the opposite is true as well. Uh, When the government tells us to stop doing something, that God has commanded us to do. So the government says, no, 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 you need to stop and cease that activity when God has says, yes, you need to do that activity. And what's interesting is that Peter, I mean, think about who's writing these words. Peter, it's Peter. He's the one who says, submit, this is the rule. But then when you look into the book of Acts, chapters 3, 4, and 5, what do we see? I mean, we see the exception played out in the life of Peter himself. Peter understand the exception, and he understand the rule. He understood the rule. And so if you remember back in the book of Acts, there's the second scenario when the government essentially told Peter and the other apostles, listen, you need to stop doing this. Remember what it was? It was stop preaching the gospel. Remember the Sanhedrin essentially got them together and they said, listen, you don't need to talk about Jesus anymore. We command you not to talk about Jesus. Now, the apostles clearly had been told by God and by Jesus himself, you need to talk about me, right? And so they said, listen, we're going to listen to, we're going to listen to God, right? We're going to obey God. And so that's kind of the first um, exception there when, when uh, the government says, listen, stop it, stop it, stop it. And we say, we must do this as in preaching the gospel. When you look into the Old Testament specifically, you see the other exception when the government tells us to do something that God tells us not to do. So I think about these young, uh, three young Hebrew uh, young men by the name of what? Anybody remember? Shadrach. Meshach and Abednego, right? Uh, so three young Hebrew men, and the government at that, at that time essentially said, listen, you, you need to bow down and worship another god. You need to bow down to an idol. And God's word specifically said, you do not do that. And they said, we're not going to obey you. And so we see a couple instances in the Bible of, of the, the exception. There is an exception, and it's very valuable, I think, as Christians for us to consider What does that look like? You know, what does that look like here in our day? But here's the point that I want to make. 
When you look at what Peter says, he doesn't mention the exception. And when you look in Romans 13, uh, Paul fleshes this idea of government out uh, even more. And there's no mention of the exception. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But let me ask the question, why is it that they don't flesh it out there? My guess is because they want us to know is that the rule is normative, right? The, the rule is normative. They want us to know this is generally how Christians are to relate to the government. You're to submit. Yes, there are exceptions, but listen, Christians, this is normative. Submit to your government. So let's say, for instance, if the government says at some point uh, that as a preacher, if I stand before you and I, and I make a comment about uh, sex outside of marriage, if I make a comment about sexual preferences other than between a male and a female, and I say this is outside of God's will, this is wrong, this is sin, and if at some point, if the government says you can't do that, I think as a Christian, I have to say, God tells me I need to preach the whole counsel of God's word as a preacher. It's very clear, and so we're willing to kind of make that an exception. Uh, maybe another one, although it's not here, but in China, uh, there's a one-child rule, and so if you have a child and uh, you have a second child, the government essentially says you have to abort that child. And God forbid that ever happened here, but if it does, as a Christian, I, I don't think I can go there. I don't think I can, I, can, I can do that. So those are a couple examples, but the point is this. The rule, the norm, is to submit to government. So let's move on then from the rule to the reason. He says, if the rule is submission, then, then what's the reason? I mean, what's the motivation? Why, why do we do this? I mean, who are we ultimately being obedient to? Notice what he says. He says, submit yourselves for whose sake, church? For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. And so this is significant because ultimately our obedience to government is not motivated by the government. <laughs> our obedience to the government is motivated by our relationship with God. It's motivated by the fact that in verse 14, we see, we see Peter says that the government is, quote, sent by God. It's sent by God. And in fact, if you read Romans 13, it's even more clear. It's the idea that God establishes government on the earth, and there's no government on the earth that is not uh, overseen by God's divine hand. And so if, if God has a place, if God sends government, then we disobey government, then what does that mean about our relationship to God? It means we're disobeying God. And so we've seen the rule, but the reason, it's so significant. Why is it that I try to drive rightly on the road? I mean, why is it that I try to pay my taxes and not fudge, and we work hard to be honest and, and full of integrity? Well, it's not because I want the government to get as much money as they possibly can from me. <laughs> it's because I want to be obedient to God the best that I can. So it's for the Lord's sake. That's, that's why we do it. So we've seen the rule is submission. We've seen the reason is for God's sake. And then number three, we see the range. I'll call it the range. In verses 13 through 14, if the rule is submission and the reason is God's sake, well, well, what's the range? That is, do we have to obey every form of government? Is there certain forms or types of governments that we don't need to uh, submit to? Is, is there certain levels of government that are an exception to this? Well, this is what Peter says. Let's, let's read this little chunk there in verse tail end of verse 13, he says, for the Lord's sake, every human authority, every human authority, and then he fleshes that out, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him. And so essentially what he says is, listen, the range of this idea, the range of the rule of obeying, it, it goes into every 
form of local government. And so by way of application, it's not like we have the option to be honest in how we pay our state or our local taxes and be dishonest with how we deal with the federal government. It's not like we can follow the state speed limits to a T but not obey the village laws, right? All of the government from village on up to the federal government is under this auspice of the rule, right? And so we've seen the rule. Peter says, submit. We've seen the reason. It's for God's sake. We've seen the range. It's to every human authority. And then we see number four, the role. That is, Peter's answering the question, what then is the role of government? I mean, what part does it have to play? Again, Paul in, uh, in Romans 13 ex- ex- fleshes this out even more. But we see the rule here, and, and notice what he says. It says, uh, referring to the emperor and the authorities and the governors, he says, who are sent by him, so they're sent by God, to what? To punish those who do wrong on one hand, and then to commend those who do right on the other. So we see this dualistic uh, role of the government. It's to reprimand those who do wrong and to reward those who do right. That's essentially what Peter says. That's the role of the government. Now, this is normative. This is how it should work. Uh, Peter's looking at the government in, in ideal terms, but he says that's kind of the point. When you do wrong, the government should punish you, and, and to some degree, when you do right, it should at least not punish you, if not reward you. Um, personal illustration here um, about the, the purpose of government. It's to protect and it's to punish wrongdoers. You know, I, I kind of thought about my life this week as I was thinking about obeying the law, and every time I, I drove somewhere, I was conscious. I was like, okay, how, how fast am I going? Because I'm talking about obeying the law on Sunday, right? And then, and then uh, you know, I'm driving and the text message goes off and I'm like, ooh, a text message. And I want to whip it out and start, oh, wait, that's illegal now. Put it away, <laughs> you know? And so on my mind all week long is obey the law, obey the law. I'm preaching it on Sunday. I don't want to be a hypocrite here, right? And, and so it's, it's been on my mind. But I started thinking about, you know, what, how have I broken the law over the years? And I started to think of, of a good example, and I won't share with you all the ways that I broke the law <laughs> over my past, however long I've been alive, um, but I will share with you one, because I think it fits the idea that government is there to punish those who do wrong. I've probably shared this story before, but in, endure my story again. When I was probably 17, uh, maybe 18, uh, my dad uh, chose to get me a, a car. It wasn't a new car, but it was new to me. And I wanted a Mustang. I, wanted, I like going fast. <laughs> so uh, I asked my dad for a Mustang, and for some crazy reason, he got me a Mustang. He must have trusted me more than I trusted myself. I don't know. He got me a Mustang. And so I was pretty careful with it. You know, I didn't try to do crazy things. But there was one instance that I remember very specifically. I, uh, I was, it was probably a Saturday morning. I was doing something, and I had a church league softball game. So remember, it was a church league softball game, okay? I'm going to play for the church. And I'm late. I'm very late. And do you, you want to know why the reason why I was late for a church league soft game, softball game? It's because I had a friend whose car was broken down. And I was being a good Christian young man, going to help him, do what I could, give him a jump, whatever, right? So we're working on my friend's car, and I'm like, I am late to my church league softball game. And because I'm a wonderful player, they really need me, okay? That's what I'm thinking. And so I'm like, I got to get there, you know? Don't lose without me. So, long story short, I hop in my really fun Mustang that, you know, the speedometer topped out at, I think, 140 or something. And um, I'm like, 
I, I'm going to speed. I, I'm going to get there quick, you know. And so I got to go, and it's kind of a misty day. It's, it's kind of lightly raining, you know, the kind where the roads are especially dangerous after a, just a little bit of a wetness, you know, that kind of a day. And so I'm driving, and I'm speeding, and I'm going way too fast. And I see behind me, guess what, right? And I've never had a ticket before. This is my first ticket. And I panic, probably, you know, well, I panic. And uh, I pull over, and I'm scared to death. And I knew that I was in big trouble because I was going way too fast. And so the police officer was none too pleased with this young punk uh, going, I think, 85 and a 60. And uh, he said, son, do you have any idea how fast you were going? And I said, yes, sir. (laughs) He said, why were you going that fast? And I said, I've got a church league softball game. (laughs) The fact that I was going to a church function didn't seem to impress him. And uh, so that, I I could tell I wasn't getting any help here. And he said, son, do you realize that you were going 25 miles per hour over the speed limit? And I said, yes. And he said, do you know that that legally is reckless endangerment and that I could throw you in jail right now? And I said, no. (laughs) And and at that point, I'm about to cry, I'm sure. (laughs) And he says, and he goes back and he does his stuff. You know how policemen do, like leaving me in suspense, like I'm going to jail, you know, and I'm sitting there in my car. And he comes back and he's got a ticket and he said, listen, you were driving recklessly, the road was wet, you were endangering yourself and other people, and you were breaking the law. Uh, I'm going to give you this huge speeding ticket. Don't do it again. I was like, thank you, sir. Thank you. You know, so, and I go home and, well, you can imagine what happened at home. But the long story short is that it was right for him to do that. I was breaking the law, and not only was I endangering myself, but I was endangering everybody else driving me. That's the role of government. It's to prevent stupid teenagers like me from driving 85 in the 60, because it's, it's wrong. It's endangering people. That's the role of government that, peop, uh, that, that Peter talks about. So if the rule, then, is submission, and if the reason is for God's sake, and the range is all of government, and the role, then, is to punish evil, what is What's the result? And so Peter talks a little bit then about two results when we as believers submit to the government. There, there are two results here. And the first one is found in verse 15. Uh, jot this down if you're taking notes. The first result is to silence unbelievers' criticism. That is to, to make an unchristian, when they criticize the Christian, to silence that criticism. There, there's no reason for criticizing us because we don't break the law. Notice what he says in verse 15. For, explanatory, for it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Now I think specifically he's not talking about just doing good like being moral. I think he's, the good that he's talking about is obeying the government, is submitting to authority. That's what he's talking about. So he says, listen, it's God's will that if, if you do good, if you as a Christian, if you obey the government and you do it in this way, what's, what's going to happen? Why should you do that? Well, number one, he says, there are people out there who are not Christians and they're, they're slandering you. They're speaking ill against you. They're, they're, t- they're calling you bad names. Now, a little bit of history, I think, is helpful here. We don't know exactly when this was written, but what we know is uh, pretty much leading up to this event with the fire in Rome, and, and probably thereafter, is that there were criticisms by the pagans, by those who were unchristians, of the Christian. And one of the chief criticisms was that they called Christians bad citizens. They called Christians bad citizens. They were not good citizens. They were, they were not good Romans, uh, chiefly because 
they were kind of seen as antisocial because when you became a Christian, what you would stop doing is several things, but uh, a large part of the community would be these, uh, these worship festival gatherings at the local uh, temple of, of pick your, your deity, right? And there would be all sorts of immoral things going on there. And so it was, just a, it was just a part of being a part of the town, kind of like going to, you know, to pumpkins in the park or going to old settlers. That's, that's kind of what you do, right, to be a good citizen of the community. You go to those events, you participate, at, right? Well, 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 these Christians wouldn't do that. They wouldn't go to these community kind of events. And even worse, what they saw then was the appeasement of those deities. Those gods were to bless that community. Those idols were seen as being a blessing upon the town. So as a Christian, if you say, no, I'm not going to go there, what do they think about you? Well, you don't care about our city. You don't care about our town. The gods aren't going to bless us. You're a bad citizen, That is what they were dealing with. And so Peter says, listen, you can't do those things, but what you can do is obey the law. And if you obey the law, then any criticism that they may give to you will be silenced. And so there's there's the first result, which is related to the unchristian, but there's a second result, and it relates to those of us who are Christian, and and it's this. It's to silence believers' excuses. Jot that down. It's to, it's to silence believers' excuses. And so I think he then turns from the unchristian world to the Christian world, and he says, listen, if you, if you obey the government, and if you, if you do what I'm telling you to do, then there's going to be some, some excuses that Christians give that won't hold any water. Notice, notice what he says. It's, it's kind of hard to understand, but I think we can break it down. Verse 16, he says to Christians, live as free people. That's kind of odd, right? It's kind of odd for him to say that as he's talking about submitting to government. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. And then he says, do this. Live as God's slaves. Live as God's slaves. And I think, I think what's going on is, is this. There may have been some Christians then, and there are some Christians today, and I'll share a brief story about some that I knew. There are some Christians today who say, listen, I'm free from the law in Christ. They, they look at what, especially what Paul says about the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, some of the rituals, and, and they look at what the apostles taught about some of the man-made regulations and, and, and the festivals and, and the Sabbaths and, and, and Peter makes it really clear. Listen, you're not under that law anymore, right? You're not under the law. That's a very common theme in a lot of Paul's letters. And so my guess is that what happened is there are Christians who, they just had this in mind. We're free from the law. We're free from the law. And so then they, they come to the, to the governmental law of the land, to the, to the local authorities or to the Roman rule, and they say, listen, I'm a Christian. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. I'm, I'm free from the law, right? And Peter says, well, no, <laughs> not exactly. You, you're free, but when you're free, you're, you're a slave of God. You're not really free as a Christian. You're, you're free to be a slave of, of, of God, and God says obey the law, so you need to obey the law. And so there was a misconception, there was an excuse for some Christians then and for some Christians to say, today to say, I don't have to obey to any law. And here's my example. Um, when I was in college, um, one of the things that was uh, always a part of college life was alcohol. It's just, it is what it is, and it it was what it was. And I had some friends, and they were Christians. They were born-again Christians, as as far as I know. And uh, and so they, uh, I said, hey, what are you guys doing tonight, right? And they say, listen, we're going to go, we're going to go to this party and that party. I said, okay, that's fine, go, you know. And they said, do you want to come? I said, not really, I'm not anti-party, I just didn't want to come. And they said, well, we're going to go, we're going to go get drunk, and these are uh, young college students, one, who are under 21, so they should not have been drinking, and two, they shouldn't be getting drunk, right? That's clear from the scripture. And so I'm like, what? You, 
First of all, don't you know you're under 21? You shouldn't be drinking, right? And they're like, oh no, 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 no. That's not right, Trey. And I'm like, yeah, that is right. <laughs> what are you talking about? And they're like, listen, I, I've been reading Galatians, and I've been reading Romans, and I read that we are free in Christ. This, literally, this is the card they played. We're free in Christ, man. That's what we, there's no rules. You know, we're free in Christ. And I'm like, you're an idiot. <laughs> That's not right. Read the rest of Romans. Read the rest of the scriptures. And what you find out is that, yeah, you're free. Like Peter says, live as free people, but don't use that freedom as a cover-up to do evil, i.e. disobey the law. You need to be God's slaves. And so we've seen five things. If the rule is then submission, the reason is for God's sake, the range is to all government, the role is to punish evil, and the results are for the unbeliever to silence their criticism and for the Christian to uh, silence their excuses. What then is our response? Uh, and he says that in verse 17. It's kind of a threefold response, but I really just want to focus on the, the last part. What is the response then? Well, he makes a, a blanket statement. And he says, we just need, we need to respect all people. We need to respect them. Let's, let's see what he says in verse 17. And then he fleshes that out. What does that look like? He says, show proper respect to, to everyone. Well, that's a pretty broad statement. We need to respect every single human being, every single authority. We need to respect them. And then he kind of fleshes it out to three categories. Number one, to show respect to the Christian means to love the family of believers. We talked about that last week, so we're not going to talk about it before. But he says, listen, you need to love your, your, Christ, your Christian brothers and sisters. You need to love them, right? That's how you respect them. And then he says, well, how, what does that look like for God? He says, well, to show proper respect to God means to fear God. And this is the part I want to focus on because I think he ends here uh, intentionally. Love the family of believers, fear God, and then what, church? What the emperor? Honor. Honor the emperor. Some translations may say respect. So let me ask you a quick question. Do you think it was easy for the Christians in this day to do that? Do you think that they were under the kind of government that was worthy of respect? Do you think that they were under the kind of government that just they loved and they were so, uh, they, they loved to submit and they loved to obey and they loved to, to speak so respectfully and rightfully about this Nero guy? What do you think? Well, no, <laughs> of course not. Uh, significantly, Peter says, honor the emperor who was Nero at that time, who was crazy and who was killing them and who was seeking out systematically to, to destroy them and to, and to blame them for, for a time period. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, maybe one or two, maybe three years later, 67 AD probably, what we find out is that this very same emperor who Peter says to honor kills Peter. That's how Peter died. Peter died under Nero, most likely in Rome, most likely by being crucified upside down because he did not want to be crucified like his Savior. That's the man that Peter says, honor. Wow, that's amazing. That is hard. And so we as Christians, whether you are Republican or Democrat, whether you like the president, whether you don't like the president, whether you're going to love the future president, or whether you're going to hate him, regardless of where you are politically, my promise to you is that we do not live in such a culture today that is so antagonistic to us as Christians as this culture and as these believers. No, we may be going there, but we're certainly not there yet. Last I checked, I wasn't fearful for my life. Last I checked, there wasn't somebody knocking on my door saying, are you a Christian? And if I said yes, they would take me away and kill me. That hasn't happened to us yet. It may, but it hasn't. 
The point is this. We oftentimes, on both sides of the aisle, can get so frustrated and angry, and rightly so, on, on, on a whole variety of issues with our government. But we're not there. And so let me ask you a question. Do you honor the emperor? Now, I know our president right now and our president in the future and our president's many, many years in the future, they're not the, the emperor, but sufficient to say that the, the chief ruler here, the chief ruler He says to honor him, and I've kind of wrestled with that. Does that mean I have to respect him? What What does that mean? Does that mean I have to agree with him? Does that mean I have to like him? What does that mean? Well, it's worthy of further study, but what I think it means is that we don't have to like him, we don't have to agree with him, and we don't have to just you know, not, not participate in government. But what I think it does mean is that because of who he is, because of the position that God has placed him in, check Romans 13, uh, we need to honor him in our speech and in our attitudes. That doesn't mean we can't disagree, but we need to honor him. And so do you do that? Do you honor the president regardless of his party, party regardless of his politics, regardless of his agenda on both sides of the aisle? I think we need to be very careful about how we speak about the man who leads our country, whomever he may be in years to come and whoever he is now. Especially, I think, as we disagree with him in public discourse. So let me ask you a question, Christian. Would someone who is maybe listening to what you had to say about him or somebody else, we're talking both sides of the aisle, if you were talking about the president, if somebody from the other side of the aisle, whether Republican or Democrat, were to, to listen to what you had to say, maybe you're dialoguing with them, would they come out of that conversation and would they say, listen, we disagree fundamentally on many things. I don't agree with you on this and that and the other and all, all the rest. We are diametrically opposed, but I know that you respect that man and I know that you respect me because of the way that you have spoke about him and about me. Would they say that? I think that's what it means to honor the emperor. So I want to close this morning with with a quotation. Uh, It's a quotation by a man named John Whitmer, and he's written a a brief article called The Man with Two Countries, a very fitting title for a Christian, The Man with Two Countries. I'd like to read it, and then we'll close in prayer. He picks up on this idea of dual citizenship, and notice what he says. Ever since Christianity was first preached— The Christian citizen has been a puzzle both to himself and to his rulers. By the elementary necessities of his creed, speaking of the Christian's faith, by the elementary necessities of his creed, he has been a man living in two worlds. Sound familiar? The one, in one he has been a member of the national community. In the other, a community taken out of the nation's. In one, he has been bound to, obey, bound to obey and enforce the laws of his state. In the other, to measure his conduct by standards often not recognized by the laws of the state and often inconsistent with them. He essentially says we are dual citizens. And so Christians, since we are dual citizens, since our home is heaven and yet we live here in the great United States of America, we have an obligation, both to our government here and both to our eternal government. We have uh, rights here and we have rights there, but we have obligations to obey both. We are dual citizens, and yes, there are times when those conflict, but most of the time they don't. And so since that's true, let's strive to be the best citizens of both 
places that we can be by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you this morning and we recognize that, that this issue that we've broached on is very hard. It's a challenging issue and yet it affects every single one of us because we are all citizens of some nation, of some place, of some location because of our birth. We, most of us, were born here in the United States and therefore we have the great privilege of being citizens here and yet for those of us who have been born again, for those of us who have been born from above, we, we, we enter into this dual citizenship, Father, where we have you as our ultimate authority and your country and your rules and your laws and your king, and, and we humbly bow to you and to your son and to the Holy Spirit because you are primary, and yet we struggle because we live in a land and we are citizens here. And we see in Peter and in other places that we are to submit to the authorities that you have given us in place here. And we want to do that. Father, we want to be godly Christians so that no one can criticize us, so that no one can criticize us for for speeding habitually, so that no one can criticize us for, for texting while we're driving, and even though we're not supposed to, so that no one can criticize us for, for not wearing a seatbelt even though the law says we're supposed to, for running a stop sign when, when no one's coming because we think we're above the law. Father, help us. Help us to be obedient when we need to be obedient and help us to be civilly disobedient when the time comes. And Father, give us great wisdom to know the difference between the two. We trust you. We love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for our sins. We thank you that he indeed is our king. He is our Lord. And that we give to Caesars what is Caesars, but we give to God what is God's. Help us to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You guys just stand as we read a doxology, and we'll be done for the day. So let's, let's stand as I read the very last couple verses of Jude. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, church, and to present you before his glorious presence without any fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. And God's people said, amen. See you next week.